0: Thank you, Kevin, for shepherding us before the throne of grace, and Danny and Eric as always for giving us a song of praise to our great King. Well, Psalm sixteen, excuse me, Proverbs sixteen nine reminds us that the heart of man plans his way. But the Lord establishes his steps. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. And in James, the brother of Jesus, he reminds us as we come to the end of his epistle how we are not to boast in our plans for tomorrow because we're not in control of tomorrow. And uh, my plan for this Sunday was to continue our series on the house of the Lord and God's high calling for His church. But this past week I was reading Psalm chapter 11, which we will listen to this morning. And it's a psalm that vividly describes the fire of the Lord. And it describes the fire of the Lord in a way that is eerily similar to the way the fires that we have been living through recently, these past weeks on the West Coast. It describes it in very similar ways in which I was reading about these fires in the media. And uh, my heart was burdened and convicted as I read this psalm that as our state and our nation are literally on fire and covered with smoke and ash that are being described even by unbelievers and even by the media as quote-unquote apocalyptic. And as tens of thousands in places like Oregon have had to flee their homes, how can we as Christians ignore what God's Word has to say about these fires and what God is saying to us through His Word and through these fires. It would seem prideful and arrogant for us simply to carry on with business as usual as if this was no big deal. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to... Psalm eleven. Psalm eleven. And the title of our exposition this morning is Our God is a Consuming Fire. Our God is a Consuming Fire. Psalm eleven to the choir master of David. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, Flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but His soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind will be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Well, as we listen to these words, these God-breathed words written by King David and sung, in the temple, and the courts of the Lord, together by the people of God. God shows us that King David, like all God's sheep, King David was no stranger to fiery trials, which is essentially what Psalm 11 is all about. Psalm 11 answers the question, where is God and what is He up to in the midst of our trials? And King David knew firsthand as you read through the Psalms, as you read through First and Second Samuel, King David knew firsthand about trials. He knew what it was to be a refugee. He knew the fear of losing everything that you have as far as earthly possessions go. He knew the fear of having to flee for your life. He knew what it was like to be abused and attacked by wicked men in the very house, in the very place, Where the Lord had called him to live and serve and worship. I want you to think about that for a minute, not just about fleeing and getting out of town. He knew what it was like to be abused and attacked in the very home and house that the Lord had called him to be a witness for him, to serve him, and to minister to his people. As you think of 1st King Saul, and then you think of his own son Absalom, and you think of others within his own household who persecuted King David, attacked him, desired and schemed for his death to the point where David on a recurrent basis had to flee with nothing but the shirt in his back and those who were willing to go with him. And that division in those trials and people having to decide, are we going to stick with David? Are we going to wait this one out? And yet, as we read Psalm 11, King David shows us in his confession, and the Lord shows us. In the midst of these trials, King David did not give in to fear, to despair, or to temptation. Why? Well, he gives us the answer in the very first verse In the Lord I take refuge. In the Lord I take refuge. And that brings us to our first point this morning. The Lord is always a true and present refuge for the righteous. Not some of the time. The Lord is always a true and present refuge. Not for everybody, but for the righteous. And in verse 1, King David he shows what it is in a crisis or a trial that separates the righteous from all the rest. What is it that separates the righteous from all the rest? Well, in the good times, brothers and sisters, it's hard to see. When the money's coming in, there's a great paycheck, things are working out fine, there's no shelter in place, we're all able to gather. There's difficulty in seeing what is it that separates the righteous From the rest. But it's in times of testing, in times of trial, where the Lord starts to distinguish between the two. It's over time, as Dr. MacArthur likes to say, time and truth go hand in hand. As things unfold, as things get difficult, as things get hard, as the bonus and the instant gratification is thrown by the wayside, that's when we begin to see a separation between the righteous and the rest. And it's not blind courage that separates the righteous from the rest. And it's not, brothers and sisters, the absence of pain and suffering that separates the righteous from the rest. It's not an easier or better life that separates the righteous from the rest. It's not a better home, better family, better marriage, better lifestyle that separates the righteous from the rest. What separates the righteous from the rest, brothers and sisters, Well, King David shows us here. It's a simple faith in the Lord's perfect love and care for His children. What separates the righteous from the rest is in the midst of trial, a simple faith in the Lord's perfect love and care for His children. And this is what we see on display with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knows he's going to the cross. He knows he's going to be rejected. He knows he's going to be humiliated. He knows everybody who is close to him will abandon him. He knows he's going to suffer physically and spiritually. And yet what does he do? Does he run? No, brothers and sisters, he prays. And he places his confidence and his hope in his heavenly father. And even though he will suffer, and even though he will lose everything in this life, his confidence in his Father's perfect love for him is unshaken. The Lord will keep his word, and he will work these things out, even if we as humans do not begin to understand these things. How's your prayer life, brothers and sisters? True righteousness is about running to God. That's it, plain and simple, brothers and sisters. Where do you turn and to whom do you turn in the midst of trials and crises? Do you try and manage and fix things yourself? Do you get upset or frustrated? Do you try and make sure that you've got the perfect exit strategy? Which is what, as we go through the rest of the psalm, men are coming to David and enticing him. How do you make the exit strategy? Well, righteousness, brothers and sisters... It's not about being the star seminarian. It's a simple faith that runs to the Lord when it matters most. Because what we run to, brothers and sisters, in our trials, health problems, loss of jobs, loss of friends, adversity and difficulty in our families, what we run to in trials, brothers and sisters, reveals what's most important to us. And it reveals what we really believe in. King David says in verse 1, In the Lord I take refuge. And the ongoing pattern of King David's life, in good times and in bad times, was running to the Lord. And by extension, because the Lord dwells in His holy house, it's running to the house of the Lord. A sanctuary, quite literally. A place set apart for the Lord and running to the people of the Lord. It's why King David, the desire of his heart is to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He wants to be with the Lord. He wants to be with the people of the Lord. He wants to be with the godly, those who delight and love the Lord. That's where he wants to be, especially, brothers and sisters, when things are ugly. for King David... Why did he want this? It's very simple, because he loved the Lord. He loved the Lord. He delighted in the Lord. That was the desire of his heart, was to be with his creator, to gaze upon his beauty, as we read last week, and to inquire of him, to have fellowship with the Lord. And for King David, more than personal safety, more important than personal safety, was his desire to be with the Lord. And he knew that to be with the Lord for a child of God, regardless of the trials that rage, that was the place of greatest pleasure, delight, and joy. It's the place where we're meant to be. And so that's why King David in the very beginning says very clearly in the midst of this trial, In the Lord I take refuge. And he uses language to show that that's actually the ongoing pattern of his life. To seek shelter and protection in the presence of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, where do we look for shelter and protection in our time of need? And it's a worthy question to ask as we wrestle with this whole issue of is it legal to gather? Should we be gathering? What should we do? How do we protect our families? How do we protect our children? How do we protect on all those considerations, which are worthy considerations, brothers and sisters. But ultimately, where has God provided for children to be loved and taken care of? Well, ultimately, as David shows, it's with the Father. It's with the Lord. That is the place where children are meant to be, to be loved and cared for. And as we read the rest of the psalm, lest we think that for King David, well, this is easy. You know, he was used to running for his life. King David, this is no big deal. As you read through verses 1 through 3, you see that for King David, this was not easy. In verses 1 through 3, King David shares with us the very real temptations of trials. And that is the temptation of living by feelings and fear as opposed to faith. So Danny and Eric led us in the praise song this morning about walking by faith. Well, that's always the test before us, brothers and sisters. Are we going to walk by faith when we can't see the end with our eyes, when our experience and feelings tells us differently? Are we going to walk by faith or will our fear and our feelings be the ones to rule and run our lives? So we read in verse 1, King David writes, How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? And King David here is talking about the enticement to flee in fear. He's talking about the temptation to run, to isolate ourselves, to withdraw, to crawl into a hole, to make an escape plan, to find that place where you can do whatever you can to distance yourself from your problems. Whether that be a vacation, a different job, a different church, a different family, a different spouse. Whether it be pills or therapy or whatever it is. What's the exit plan to give me a little bit of distance from what's putting heat in my life and causing stress? And as we look at that trend, we see all of that, brothers and sisters, typically is driven by one thing. It's driven By a desire for me. It's driven by a desire for self-preservation. What do I need to do to make things better for me? And that is the temptation that's confronting King David. As he's under attack. And there are those in his life who are coming and saying, Look, get out of town. Flee like a bird to your private mountain. Get to that private place. We see how the wealthy and rich function in COVID. They're all off on their yachts. They're all flying to New Zealand. They're all going to those places where they can be isolated and separated until this all blows over and then they can start all over again. And King David had men in his life who were doing the same thing in the midst of trials. And in verse 2 through 3, King David shows us why trials tempt all of us in this way. Brothers and sisters, we're all tempted in this way. Let's be honest about it. When things are hard or difficult, you know, who wouldn't rather put yourself in a room and turn on your TV and watch the NBA playoffs rather than deal with the issues at hand? King David shows us why these these temptations are real. King David in verse 2 and 3 shares how he is being violently attacked by the wicked. And they are not simply trying to take his life, his life. They are trying to tear down and destroy the very foundations upon which the entirety of his life stands. And whether it be wildfires, whether it be sickness, whether it be the loss of family or jobs or home. This, brothers and sisters, is what trials threaten to do. Real trials, the real ones. Real trials threaten to take away everything that our life is built upon. And many times they do, because many times what we discover our life is built on is a paycheck, a relationship, a friend, something earthly and temporal, families, all of these things, which, brothers and sisters, are of no heavenly value. And, brothers and sisters, sometimes, as we'll see, God intentionally comes and takes these things away to get our attention... To show us that our eyes have been built and our confidence and faith have have been built on things that are going to burn as opposed to a desire to be with the Lord. Trials threaten to take away everything our life is built upon. And in doing so, what they do is they expose just how weak and small and helpless we really are. Real trials, brothers and sisters, that come our way. They're trials when we know we feel absolutely and utterly helpless to do anything. And in truth, much of our anxiety and fear is spent trying to avoid that place where we've completely lost control. Or at least lost the illusion of control. It's why King David writes in verse 3, If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And the answer, obviously, it's a rhetorical question, the answer, obviously, is nothing. In and of themselves, the righteous can't do anything to save themselves. King David knew he could not fix or manage or run away from the trials and the problems that the Lord had brought his way. Not big enough, not strong enough, not wise enough, not godly enough. And this brothers and sisters, is why the King David looks up. And he looks to the Lord in his word. And this brings us to our second point for this morning. The Lord is the righteous judge of all men. The Lord is the righteous judge of all men. When it comes to the trials of this past year, brothers and sisters, and there have been many. This has been a dark year. Remember here when we had Carl Hargrove visiting with us and we were hanging out and we walked out into the parking lot and suddenly everybody was on alert that Kobe Bryant had died in a helicopter crash. And it seems that there's been since that time just this pall and shadow of death and destruction And relentless trials this past year. COVID 19, shelter in place, wildfires, floods in certain parts of the country, locusts in Africa, all manner of craziness. Political shootings, George Floyd, the list goes on and on. But what's interesting, brothers and sisters, is we think about how Americans have reacted. It's been like a bad marriage. There's been no shortage of blame shifting. What is blame shifting? Blame shifting is that when there's a problem, you point your fingers at everybody else. They're the reason that we're having a problem. Well, this is the China virus. Well, this is the Wuhan virus. Well, it's the deep state. Well, these are the Democrats who are perpetuating these things so that they can get their candidate reelected. This is Antifa. Well, that's global warming, it's neglect. Of our forests and mismanagement. The list goes on and on. And what goes through these things is there's very little ownership within our communities that we as Americans bear responsibility for much of the ugliness that we have seen break out in our nation over the past year. God forbid that we would ever take ownership. No, instead we'll point our fingers at one another as if we're in a marital spat. If the other person would just fix themselves, we'd be just fine. And that's just in blame-shifting, another way of trying to control the narrative and trying to control the problem in a very effective way. As we think about all those things that we read about, in all these things, and all these responses, there are two entities that are ignored by conservatives and liberals alike. The first entity that is Ignored by conservatives and liberals alike as they discuss all these trials and problems, is the Lord Himself. Nobody really stops and says, okay, where is God and His sovereign hand in all of these things? And the second entity that nobody really considers or talks about as we talk about all these trials is our sinfulness, our sinfulness, our wickedness, and our violence. Brothers and sisters, we we are one of the most wicked and violent nations in the history of the world. America the good, make no mistake about it. Just read a few history textbooks from our beginning all the way through. But these are not things that are politically correct to talk about. The Lord and our sinfulness. But for King David, in the midst of this trial and in the midst of this psalm in verse 4, King David turns to the Lord and to his word. And the testimony of God's word is that the Lord is not absent. And the Lord is not unaware of what is happening here on earth. And the Lord is not unaware of the trials that beset both the wicked and the righteous. In fact, he's very much involved. He is... Where he has always been. His rule is what it always has been. Sovereign, providential, perfect, and present. So King David writes in verse 4, The Lord is, active and ongoing, the Lord is in his holy temple. He hasn't left. The Lord's throne is in heaven. And his eyes see. For all of you who are aspiring to be biblical counselors, as you deal with people who are suffering, as you deal with people who have been through horrific abuse by members of their family, as you deal with people who are challenged in places where they are helpless, the hope that they need is that the Lord is not absent. This is not pie in the sky, He is very present, He is in control. He has a reason and a purpose behind these trials. And his eyes actively see what is going on and what is happening does not go past the Lord. And this is where King David starts. And then in the rest of verse 4 and 5, King David shows very specifically that these trials that have come his way are in fact the Lord's holy handiwork. Yes, yes. It is the wicked who are trying to kill David and destroy everything that his life is built upon. But make no mistake, David knows that the wicked are not acting apart from God's sovereign plan. That the Lord is ultimately in his throne. He is in control and he has an agenda. And that agenda for his children is good, even if his children do not fully understand that agenda. These trials are in fact the Lord's holy handiwork that have been sent to test and to judge all men, both the righteous and the wicked. Verse 4, his eyelids test the children of man. His eyelids test the children of man. And here King David is using this metaphor, this illustration of a man who is squinting or examining closely looking carefully not neglect not just a glance but just looking with a piercing gaze and examining this is what the lord is doing and he's examining all men the righteous and the wicked and the testimony of god's word is that the lord is omniscient and omnipresent he is all knowing he is all seeing and he is everywhere And he is the holy king and the righteous judge of all men. David is pointing out here that the Lord cares. Not just about what happens to us. That's typically what we care about. We care about what's going to happen to me. You know, if you make all these decisions, what's going to happen to me? If I lose my job, what's going to happen to me? If my family gets sick, what's going to happen to me? And brothers and sisters, if we're honest, so often many of the things that we lobby for as there are problems, either in our lives or other people's lives, are driven by that question. What's going to happen to me? But King David shows here what God is concerned about. God knows what's going to happen to you. And he knows what's going to happen to me. He's already got all of that worked out. That's set. And God does care about what, God, what will happen to us. And he's made provision for it. Our kids sometimes will ask us questions. What's going to happen? What's going to happen? What are we going to do tomorrow? And they might not understand all the details. But over time they learn and they understand that their parents in love have everything already worked out. The plans have been set a while back. And God like a father is like that with his children. He cares. He cares. And He has already provided for what happens to us. And that is why He has sent His Son to die on the cross for our sins. But brothers and sisters, what the Lord also cares about, and what David points to here, is He cares about what is in our hearts. What is in our hearts. And the trials He sends, be it COVID or wildfires... Relational challenges, those things squeeze all men, both the righteous and the wicked, and they expose what is in all our hearts. And they show everyone who we really are. And they show everyone what we really are. And they show everyone what we place our trust and our confidence in. They show what we really love. Are we those who turn to the Lord? Or are we those who run away from Him? Are we those who delight in the law of the Lord and meditate on it day and night and delight in doing what the Lord has asked of us? Or are we busy taking care of ourselves? And So in verse 5, when King David writes, The Lord tests the righteous. The Lord tests the righteous but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. King David shows us that the righteous are not exempt from the Lord's testing. Brothers and sisters, just because you said Jesus is your Savior doesn't give you a pass from having your house burned down. Just because you say you love Jesus doesn't mean perfect family, perfect life, perfect career, bonus at the end of the year. It's always interesting as... Brothers and sisters come and they get discouraged in ministry. And we've all been there. And the temptation is, well, I've served, I've loved, I've given everything. And all they do is not do their homework, ignore, walk away. And people sort of check in and check out. We have this legalistic mindset that somehow if we do everything right, we get a pass and Bible study and life and family is going to run smoothly. Well, David shows us here, no, quite to the contrary. The Lord tests the righteous. But there's a distinction here. But his soul hates the wicked. And the one who loves violence. And King David is showing us here. The Lord tests the righteous. But the Lord's testing. Is perfect and good. And it's based on his righteousness. And the Lord's testing is actually part of God's righteous judgment. That separates Those he loves and whom he will ultimately save. And that's the righteous. From those he hates. Those he will burn. The wicked and the one who loves violence. And our trials, brothers and sisters, what they do. For the righteous, they are a test. They refine. They remove what's unholy in our lives. And they expose, in fact, well, yes, God is present. And they show the world in the face of adversity what really is important. That these are set apart. That at their heart and core, there's a simple faith in the Lord's perfect love for His children. There's a love for Christ that they belong to Him. That's what trials do. They show who we belong to. And then trials also show the wickedness and the violence that exists in all men's hearts. That the Lord hates And the Lord will destroy. And that brings us to our third point for this morning. Our God is a consuming fire. Our God is a consuming fire. In verse 6, King David writes, Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Over the past few weeks, one of the senators described the wildfires in his state. And he talked about it in terms, and he described it as a blowtorch coming over the mountains and sweeping through the area. In almost an echo of what David writes here, Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Brothers and sisters, the testimony of God's Word is that God is not a man. And He is not a material creation like you or I. He is holy, which means He is special and unique. He is an eternal and invisible spirit. Three distinct persons, one being. Infinitely holy and beyond. Anything that we could fathom or imagine. But from the beginning, in love. And for our benefit, God chose fire to serve as a visible symbol of His personal presence. He chose fire to be the symbol of His holiness and glory. He chose fire to be a demonstration of His presence drawing near to us. And so in Genesis 15, as the Lord makes a covenant with Abraham, the Lord makes His presence known in that covenant ceremony through a smoking firepot and a flaming torch that move through the carcasses of the animals that have been sacrificed as part of that covenant. And then in Exodus, the Lord reveals Himself to Moses how? Through a burning bush. through that burning bush, he warns Moses, he gets Moses' attention, he draws Moses near, but he also reminds Moses and speaks to him from that bush, take off your shoes because you're about to step on holy ground. And then in Exodus, the Lord reveals himself to Moses and the people on Mount Sinai through fire on the top of Mount Sinai as he gives the covenant. And he gives them a pillar of fire... To lead them by night, a pillar of cloud by day, and that pillar of fire and that pillar of cloud sit in front of the tent of meeting. To let the people know that the Lord is dwelling, His presence has come near. They can be encouraged on the one hand, God is with us and He's protecting us and He's guiding and leading us. But it's also a warning, don't get too close. Because He is holy and you're unholy and God cannot tolerate sin. And those who mishandle fire are going to be burned terribly and destroyed. Then we come to the New Testament. The book of Acts. And at Pentecost, as the Lord launches the church. And he sets apart the apostles to lead his church. And to found his church and to extend his leadership. How does the Lord make his presence known? We're told in Acts, there appeared... Tongues as of fire that rested on each one of them. A visible demonstration of the Holy Spirit. So from the Old Testament to the New Testament, the Lord in love chooses fire to be the symbol of His holy presence. To let us know that He is drawing near to us. And fire, of course, is the perfect illustration and the perfect warning. Even as fire graciously offers light and heat to those who are in the dark and cold. Even as fire purifies and softens precious metals like silver and gold. And in the hands of the blacksmith. Allows the blacksmith to forge those precious metals into something beautiful and worthwhile. But fire also burns and destroys whatever does not respect or honor What fire is. This side of the Lord's holiness and His presence is shown to us throughout God's Word. We recall Aaron's sons who use strange fire and they are destroyed. And then in Genesis 19.24, the Lord rains on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire. And in fact, David's language that he uses is... Almost identical to the language that's used in Genesis 19.24. And David is making, I believe, a reference to God's judgment in Sodom and Gomorrah. The Lord reigns on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire out of heaven, as his holy judgment on an unrepentant community filled with people of wickedness and violence. He reminds them that when the Lord appears and he comes near... All wickedness and violence and sinfulness will be burned and destroyed. so it is when Jesus enters into the world. He fulfills God's word and is proclaimed as the light of the world. The one who will guide children out of darkness. He tells them that the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. Therefore, you need to repent. God's presence has come close to you. His holiness is here. The reason why, brothers and sisters, when you read those opening chapters of the Gospels and people are running like crazy to John the Baptist to get baptized, is because they are afraid they're going to get burned to death. They are familiar with the Old Testament. They are familiar with the prophecies of the minor prophets. They are familiar that when the holiness, when God shows up, there's going to be a reckoning That is going to happen. And either you belong to him. And you're part of his kingdom. And you're covered by his protection. And that's part of what baptism is about. And we're going to address that next week. You've either been set apart. You've been washed and cleaned. You're you're with him. And you're on the right side of that. If you're not on the right side. When the Lord comes. And you are an enemy. You're going to be burned to the ground. And so John the Baptist. In Matthew 3.11. Describes Jesus. As the one who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and what? Fire. He will be the one who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and the fire. The one who will separate the wheat from the chaff. Who will burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. John the Baptist's words, not mine. And with these words, John the Baptist is pointing to who Jesus is. It's the Lord has shown up. His presence is near. You'd better handle this with care. You'd better treat it with respect. You'd better have reverence in how you deal with this. Because if you handle this incorrectly and don't respect who and what this is, you are going to be burned and you're going to be destroyed. And he affirms with this that Jesus is in fact the anointed one, the Messiah. He is the Lord, He is the one who has been promised. He is the holy judge of all, who will one day use fire to test all men's works. Silver and gold will be refined by His holy presence. But what is wood, hay, and trash will burn and be destroyed. The day of the Lord, the reckoning. And as we come to the end of the New Testament, and we read passages like we heard this morning what kevin read to us second peter jude the book of hebrews the apostles are warning us that the day of the lord is near christ is going to come back and the only reason he delays is to give us an opportunity to get our lives in order to repent of our sin and turn to him in faith to make the lord our refuge not our jobs not our careers not even our churches, to make the Lord our refuge. Because when He does come again, He's going to come literally with fire. And whatever is not holy, brothers and sisters, and whatever is not covered by the blood of the Lamb, is going to burn and be destroyed. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 7-8 The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His might. And with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And this is what the reason why, brothers and sisters, Jesus, as he comes to the cross, he warns the disciples to be vigilant and sober minded. And the Apostle Paul uses that language of sobriety over and over again. And he reminds them in this way, It's we're not walking around to be drunk with the pleasures of this world, or the things of this world, or the whistles and bells of this world. We're to be alert, sober, vigilant, like the watchman on the tower. We're to be considering, Christ is coming again. We need to get the city ready. We need to get our lives ready. Brothers and sisters, the testimony of God's word is that fire in our world is not some random evolutionary accident. It is a testimony of God's holy presence drawing near. It is God's chosen agent of divine testing that exposes who and what we are, even as it points us to who and what God is, that he is a holy and consuming fire. A holy and consuming fire whose holy presence leads sinners to repentance and new life in Christ. A holy fire that refines those who love Him. Sometimes painfully so, removing the impurities or the things in our life that stop us shining for Him. But make no mistake, it's a holy and consuming fire that burns and destroys all that is wicked. And worthless and violent. Why? Well, King David shows us in his concluding verse. Verse 7. For the Lord is righteous. He loves ESPN. No, he loves righteous deeds. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. There's a connection here between all those other psalms that we've been studying and reading. David's desire, his delight, his one thing that he strives for is that he'll wake up and see the Lord's face. That he will dwell in the house of the Lord. That it's the Lord's face that will shine upon him. It is the Lord that he will see. Why? Because David is righteous? No. Because the Lord has forgiven him and made him clean. Because he has looked for refuge in the one who is righteous. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, what does this say of this era of unprecedented wildfires in America? Are we so naive and self-righteous and blind? To think that our wickedness and our violence as a nation has absolutely nothing to do with what we are witnessing and living. Are we so naive and self-righteous and blind to think that a holy and righteous God who created this world for himself would just sit back while we carry on like Sodom and Gomorrah? Uh, Pastor Mark, what are you saying? That all those people who lost their homes in Oregon, that, that they were wicked and violent? Well, I would say to you that they are no more wicked and violent than you are. I are wicked and violent. And as Jesus said, when catastrophes happen and people came to him and said, Jesus, did you see these catastrophes and these terrible things? He said, unless you too all repent, you will perish likewise. I'm sure many of the people in Oregon are far better than I am. But it's the standard of the Lord, brothers and sisters. If you're measuring by me, you're all going to burn. I have no doubt that there were believers who lost some of their homes in Oregon. And that both believers and unbelievers suffered. But as we come back to David, David's text and his words, David shows that the righteous, brothers and sisters, are tested just like the unrighteous are. The distinction is that for the true children of the Lord, these fires are a test. And like King David, they will refine their lives, they will expose their faith, they will show what their lives are really built on. Will they suffer? Yes. Do they need mercy? Absolutely. The righteous and the wicked, brothers and sisters. We need to pray for these people who have lost their homes. We need to show care and compassion. We need to do what we can do to help these folks. Okay. The Lord gives His love and His care on the righteous and the wicked. That's why we're here in this church. We're wicked people whom the Lord has shown graciousness. And so we need to show graciousness too. But the distinction through these trials is those who belong to the Lord will come to Him. They will look to the Lord as their refuge. And they will see His face. And they will be given what is most precious and of eternal value. And those who do not belong to the Lord and those who hate Him, the wicked and the violent... And those who choose to remain in their wickedness and their violence. Those who are like Lot's wife, who cannot leave their land, even as God's judgment comes and they want to hang on to it, even as the Lord is trying to remove them from destruction, they will be destroyed, just like Lot's wife. And their lives will be destroyed, first in this world, but in the judgment to come. For those who hate the Lord, without doubt, fires are a foretaste and a warning that the Lord is drawing near, and that His judgment is coming, and that the judgment when Christ returns, as promised by God's Word, is going to be far worse and far hotter than what we are presently experiencing. For the world, brothers and sisters, fires and these fires are a gift of grace. And I know we need to say that in a sober way, sensitive to those who have lost much in these fires. They're a gift of grace in that they call all men to repentance and faith in Christ. They call all men to find our refuge in Him, not in the worthless things of this world that are perishing. They call all men, you and I, to get our house in order. Because, brothers and sisters, from the foundation of time and before it, God knew one day He would rain down fire on this world. Because He is righteous. Because He loves righteous deeds. Because in righteousness He would judge and have a reckoning. But in love 2,000 years ago, He sent His Son to die on the cross, to bear the full fury of His wrath against sin. So that whoever would repent... And find their refuge in him would be saved and covered. So that they could see his face. And have joy and delight in him. Our boys recently asked us whether we were going to get emergency packs ready. Julie asked me a week or two ago, should we, should we be packing? Peter was texting me and asking what was going on. Because he'd heard about the eviction notices that were coming going in the Milpitas direction and Park family always gives us a standing offer. If we have to get out of town, we can stay at their place if things burn up. So you sit there and you go through the list and you say, what do we need and what should we keep? And the boys are there asking, shouldn't we have a data disaster backpack kit where we have all those things that we need? And the answer is, of course, yes. We need to be good stewards. We need to take care of our kids. But brothers and sisters, the true test of a trial and a disaster, the real test of a disaster preparation kit, is when the disaster comes. Because it's not until the disaster comes and you've got to live out of that backpack, do you find, did I put stuff that I really needed in that backpack? Or was it just trash? The Lego, you know, all the bills, the laptop... Were those the things that we really needed to help us get through a major disaster? And sometimes it's worth spending time with someone who's been through a disaster to sit down with them and hear from them what's really of value and importance when fires burn the house and things start to come down. Brothers and sisters, what is in your disaster backpack? What is in your earthquake it. Have you made things right with the Lord? Is Christ indeed your refuge? Are you forgiven? Are you saved? Are you covered with the blood? Is the life that you're living, brothers and sisters, invested in things that are pleasing to the Lord? Because as we read this morning, as Kevin Ow read to us from 2nd Peter, Peter gives that warning that heaven and earth are all going to burn when Christ comes for a purpose. To tell saints who are suffering and being persecuted to live godly lives. And in the book of Hebrews, the author says, Our God is a consuming fire for a reason. He does it to remind them and to tell them to draw near to Christ. And it's interesting to think of Hebrews because one of the issues is they're not gathering together at the local church. They've stopped showing up because they're being persecuted. And the author of Hebrews is saying, Guys, look, you've got it backwards. When you're under fire and in persecution, the place that you need to be is you need to draw near to Christ and you need to draw near to one another. And you need to love one another. You need to care for those who are in prison for the sake of the gospel. You need to carry on godly lives. And you need to offer your lives as living sacrifices and pleasing worship to the king. So here's your homework. Go home and read Hebrews 13 and read how the author of Hebrews provides the perfect disaster kit for when fire comes and tests and shows that the presence of the Lord is drawn near and He's deciding which side we stand on. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, You are coming. We need to get our lives together. And these fires that we have been experiencing have been a vivid demonstration that you are not far away, but that indeed you are close. And our lives need to be set apart for things of heavenly value that really matter. We need to draw near to you and to the people of God. We need your help, Lord Jesus, because we do not have a righteousness of our own that will protect us in the day of the Lord. The only righteousness and holiness that will stand will be your righteousness and holiness. Lord Jesus, may that righteousness and holiness be ours. In your name we pray, amen.